And he used some terms, uh, and he's going to use some of these terms again. One, one of the terms that he was talking about was the word narrative. When you hear the word narrative, tell me what you think. What is a narrative? Story. Okay. Can it be a third-person narrator? Okay. What would you say? Story. Story, yeah, the notion of story. <clears throat> Scripture is filled with story. But sometimes in the past that's bothered us because when we hear somebody say that there's a story in Scripture, then we think that somehow that means that things aren't historical. It's just a story. And that doesn't set very well with us, and it, it shouldn't necessarily set very well with us. But when you use the word narrative and you talk about story, it doesn't necessarily imply that something is not true. In fact... The very nature of that story might be that it rings even more true because it is told in a story kind of form. Okay? And so that can be a great blessing. So that narrative certainly does that. Another word, though, that David used, and, that, and he's already mentioned to me this morning, is the word paradigmatic. Okay? Which comes from the word paradigm. What is paradigm about? And I don't mean like two pieces of money valued at 10 cents. <laughs> okay, I'm not talking about that. What's a paradigm? It's a set of values or a system of thinking. Okay. Your world. Okay, it is indeed. Okay? It's a, it's a way of looking at things. Now, even beyond that, it's not just a way of looking at things. It becomes the dominant way of looking at things. So if we were to talk about, for example, Alberta politics, well, in many ways, the paradigm for Alberta politics was established by the Ralph Klein era and the notion of being physically very responsible and the notion of Alberta conservatism and all of that. And so when I was in B.C., we would talk about Alberta and how different Alberta was from B.C. in terms of politics. And, and we typically made those comments in light of Ralph Klein and what he was doing here. It just was something completely different. It was a different paradigm politically that was going on in Alberta than what was going on in British Columbia. It was a way of looking at things that dominated the landscape. Well, Scripture has narratives, stories, that become paradigmatic, that dominate the landscape. And so David's going to talk a little bit about that, perhaps, but some other things too. Okay? Why don't we pray together, and then David's going to come and talk to us a bit this morning. Lord, we, we want to be people who are shaped by Scripture. In this day and age, uh, that sometimes is not that easily done. And in many ways, we're not the same people we used to be with reference to how centered we are in Scripture. We want to be. Father, we pray that these stories would speak to us in a significant way, that they would shape our thinking so that Scripture's paradigm becomes our paradigm, that we think like Scripture thinks. That the world that the Bible imagines becomes our world. Help us to be blessed by your spirit in such a way that we think in those terms. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. If you weren't here last night, uh, David Fleer...
has a relationship with Rochester College and also with David Goodson University. He really is centered more, I would say, at David Goodson University. <coughs> working life right now. He's a special assistant to the president there, uh, but he also preaches and teaches uh, an awful lot in various places. Usually, I don't hear David addressing a group of 30 or 40. I've, I typically hear David address, addressing a group of 3,000, like at Pepperdine Lectures or something. Uh, several years ago, now I hope here was 2005 or something like that. He was the closing night lecturer uh, at Pepperdine for the lectures. And uh, when he finished, there were people who thought that they had heard the best sermon they'd ever heard. I don't know if you heard that, but it's true. I mean, the, the, the things that, set, that people said about David at the end of his Pepperdine lecture uh, a few years ago, well, I mean, I think I was kind of like, wow. It was amazing. So, David, come and bless us. We're grateful for your presence this morning. Thank you very much for coming. I, I, I told David, uh, I said, I'm looking for 25. I hope we have about 25 there this morning. That's kind of what I expect. I think we might have a few more than that. It's close. You don't have to count. <laughs> Pay attention to David. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Okay, let's take 30 seconds to count. <laughs> See what we actually do. Well, that was a... Um, you know, if if you ask a question like this, okay, what did you hear? You, know, you just you just talk. And, so, what did you hear me say? You know, brace yourself. You're not going to get what you think or you want to get. Is, you know, or, uh, I had when I was in Vancouver preaching. There was a, a woman who I, I grew up there, and there was a woman who knew me growing up, and I was best friends with her nephew. And he and I got were mischievous and got into trouble. And then years passed. I came back, and I was the preacher at her church. And she could never get over this. And she never had anything nice to say. In fact, she had troubles. I mean, I would meet her at the door and I'd cringe because she'd have some issue with the sermon, some problem. And then one day, she called. It was like Monday. She calls and she said, out of the I appreciated your sermon yesterday. And I should have said, thank you, Barb. And then, uh, then blessings to you, goodbye. You know, and that would have been it. But I took it a step further. I said, "Well, what was it about the sermon that you enjoyed?" <laughs> kind of while you're here, pat me on the back. And she says, "Well, it was when you said such and such." And this was Monday after Sunday's sermon. I said, "When I said such and such, I said, now, um, hmm, when, I, when did I say that?" She says, "You know, you said this." I said, "Yeah." And then you said that, yeah. And then you said this. I said, I don't remember saying that. And now I've got my notes out and I'm looking through. And she said, and she goes on, and I realized at that point that I hadn't said what she heard me say. I had said this, and then I said that, and that caused her mind to go roaming out here, out into the you know far country, <laughs> where she thought of something that was a blessing to her. And then she came back to the rest of the sermon, and when it was over with, she thought I'd said what I hadn't said. <laughs> So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you. Well, so what do you think just now? But if you have Kelly Carter just perfectly uh, kind of set up was a nice translation, even translating what this guy had been been saying and wanting to say, and I appreciate that introduction very much. Yesterday <clears throat> we talked a bit about tools in the tool chest, looking at the historical, critical, grammatical approach, emphasizing words. Words have meaning. We looked at Esther and words even performing. Uh, for example, in the book of Joel, and those locusts getting closer and closer in all of the senses. 
We looked at the literary approach a bit, pointing out little inclusios and chiasms that you would find, for example, in Mark chapter 5 and many other places. And these are just ways of kind of getting another handle on a a tool in our tool chest. And then we, we ended that section by talking about rhetorical issues, the inductive approach that one finds in Nathan's sermon in 2 Samuel 12 and even the way that 2 Samuel 11 is written, and the delivery We even did the voices out of uh, Luke 18. Two men went to the temple to pray, the narrator, Jesus, the Pharisee, as well as the tax collector. All of that was kind of a setup then to talk about what our larger image was, and that is the world that is imagined in Scripture. The movement from yesterday to today, and Kelly's absolutely right, is to move from the world that is imagined in Scripture and moving into that world, and there's many, 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 many worlds that are depicted in Scripture. I mean, where are we at now? Are we in Esther? Are we in Joel? I mean, we've taken us all over the place. Is it Luke? Is that the world we're talking about? Uh, You know, is it Ephesians 5, the word evil? What is it? And that's where the word paradigm comes into play. Uh, And you've got the definition. It's, It's right on. It's, it's large. In fact, the paradigmatic narratives, the ones that are important in Scripture, are identified in Scripture. They're called, they don't use the word paradigm, but they're called large and important. They call themselves large and important. The Old Testament and the New Testament rehearse them over and over and over again. And so you now, you can just think for a while and you think, well, are we talking about the resurrection? Yes. Are we talking about the Exodus? Yes, those are paradigmatic narratives. And not the Exodus doesn't just appear in Exodus, the book of, and Deuteronomy, the book of, but as, as events, but it's rehearsed over and over and over in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament as well. Now, not all narratives are of equal weight in Scripture. Some things are more important than other things. Jesus himself was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he did not say, he didn't respond by saying, greatest commandment? Are you kidding me? They're all great. They're all of equal value. He responded to that question by saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's, according to Jesus, there's a greatest commandment and a second great. There's weight. Oh, in fact, even when he's in conversation with the Pharisees, he's 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 angry. And he's talking to them. It's recorded in Matthew 23, 23. And he says, you hypocrites. He says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. These little spices. They tithe them. Nine Nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin. He says, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice. Faithfulness and mercy. Some things way more than other things, according to Jesus. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I delivered unto you that which I received. I delivered unto you as of first importance. Some things are more important than other things. Some things way more than other things. There's a greatest commandment and a second greatest commandment. Some matters are paradigmatic and others shrivel. In comparison. Now, that's where we're going to move. We're going to move into a paradigmatic narrative to consider. But before we do, I would like for us to finish what we started. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Genesis 37. If you don't, this is a narrative, and it's a narrative that is told so well 
It's described with such vivid imagery. You don't need to actually be reading along. You can just listen and not miss a beat. In Genesis 37, it's the beginning of the story of Joseph. Beginning at verse 2. I'll read the first 11 verses. When Joseph was 17, he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was still a youth. Along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his dad's concubines, and Joseph brought back a bad report about his brothers to his father. Now Jacob, also called Israel here, Jacob, Love Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And so he made him a very colored tunic because he loved him more. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. And then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please, please, listen to this dream that I've had. Behold, we were all binding sheaves in the field, and and lo, my sheaf rose up, stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said, are you actually going to rule over us? Are you going to rule over us? Really? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, He had yet another dream, and he related it to his brothers. And he said, Lo, I had another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers, and even his dad rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow down before you to to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. That was the background of the text that launched the end of our discussion last night, the Joseph story. And you know how it moves from there. He goes out with a word from his dad to his brothers, and when the brothers see him coming, they plot, the narrator says, they plotted to kill him. And then, if that wasn't enough, we get into the conversation, we hear the brothers talking about, let's kill him. It's one thing to hear a report. Yes, they were conspiring to kill the man. Then to actually hear the tape recording, let's kill him. It's more intense, it seems to me. But instead, one brother in charge decides to make some money and save his own face. And they dig a pit, throw him in there, and then eventually sell him to some Midianite traders. And off Joseph goes into Egypt. That's where 37 ends. Now, at this point... I, last night, said I was attracted to this text. And what attracted me to this text was my own story of feeling like one of the brothers who had witnessed a father's unequal love. And it was that attraction that moved me into this world. 
And that's where we ended. I chronicled all the issues, not all the issues, some of the issues in this dysfunctional family that I had experienced. And now I pick up with the rest of this story. This is, this is an intensely autobiographical piece. It tells you more than you want to know about me, perhaps. But what I'm hoping to do in this reading of my own personal story is to show the dangers that are inherent when we just walk into Scripture because we can so easily abuse it for our own selfish needs. But once I got into Genesis, the experience of unmatched love launches a different and larger tale. In one verse, the, the story of Jacob's love for Joseph moves the narrative away from the dock and out into a different and uncertain sea. The larger tale begins with Genesis 37 and then continues through the end of the book, which is chapter 50. The narrator focuses the reader's attention on Joseph's character, not the older brother's. The story is about Joseph, who's the victim of the brother's hatred, victim of jealousy, victim of physical abuse. The tale that begins in Genesis 37 is about Joseph, who's thrown into a pit, threatened with murder, and sold into slavery. I walked into Genesis looking for a story to comfort my private distress. But I found instead a different narrative with a different plot, demanding that I assume a different character. At this point, then, I'm beginning to wrestle with the text. It's not delivering what I want when I first get there. It's after something else. And so me and the text were like two wrestlers on the mat. I was forced to alter my understanding of the story and the part that I played for two reasons. First, the narrator, after 37 leaves the brothers in Palestine and chases Joseph into Egypt, as if they pick up the set, the cameras, the whole thing, and the whole crew walks into Egypt with Joseph. They leave the brothers behind. I'm forced into a different and more significant role because, second, the brothers violently act out their feelings. When they do, I realize they're following an evil script. There's a larger theological sensitivity that I have when I walk into this text, and that is to say that this kind of behavior, this kind of jealousy and anger gone to seed that ends up in articulating that hatred and jealousy into desiring to do away with somebody isn't right. So there's a larger theological sensitivity that I have that trumps what the brothers are doing. And also what got me is that I realized that what I was doing was simply fulfilling the evil script my dad had handed to me. He handed me a script and said, this is who you are. This is how you act. And I realized, much to my shock and shame, that I was using the Bible to enact the script my dad had given me. But I'm not that man. I'm not a bad man. I am not an evil man. And I will not play out the script That was handed to me. And I can say to you now before I continue that I am spending my adult life trying not. It's a daily, it's a daily battle not to be the man that my dad expected me to be. And it's with the help of God and a larger biblical narrative that that can be accomplished. The biblical narrative has helped awaken in me a realization that I have actually played Joseph's role since my birth. 
My mother played the part of Jacob, lavishing signs of her signs of affection upon me. When I would, when my mother was, when I was grown and I would go, go to visit my mother, she would inevitably have some friend over, and I would be introduced to her friend. And every time, this friend of my mother's would say, "Oh," and I'm meeting her for the first time. Your mother sure loves you. And I thought for the longest time that's what older women say when they meet a child, an adult child. I just, they all say that. Uh, I remember, too, in, in, uh, in junior high, my mother went to the football coach and was trying to bargain with the coach to get me more playing time. <laughs> I didn't work. But when I tried out for the church at Vancouver where she was a member, she went to the elders to campaign for her son. And it did work. <laughs> That's the kind of Jacob that I grew up with. But once I, my mother passed away, I began to feel the full force of being Joseph, who was now banned to Egypt and removed from the one who lavished him with love. For this character, Genesis 39 began as a chapter with promise because it's framed with this assuring phrase. If you look at 39, it begins, And the Lord was with Joseph. That's how the chapter begins. But the truth is, without the narrative's framework, you'd never know that the Lord was with Joseph. Because chapter 39 is a story of Potiphar's wife's, wife's lust for Joseph. She says, lie with me. And he says, I can't do this evil. But she's not, she's not deterred. And it's the, it's the story of false accusations of rape. It's the story of a master's misdirected anger. It's the story of Joseph's imprisonment on false charges. All of this is framed, and the Lord was with Joseph. You would never have known that the Lord is with Joseph if you're just reading the story itself. It's good that we're told. It's easy to misread the story's events, especially if you are Joseph. It looks like hatred, silence, shunning, torture, death threats, slavery, sexual harassment, false charges, charges, imprisonment might lead you to the understanding that, or to the reality that it's like a riptide taking Joseph out to sea into the, into the land of vengeance and retribution. It would be easy to get sucked into that deep sea. But the writer of Genesis 37 and 39 offers a different imperative model. The writer creates a larger and hopeful understanding for the story, one that acknowledges God's presence and power to work in Joseph's life. Joseph, in contrast to his brothers, is living out a script of which he appears unaware. Back in Palestine, Joseph appeared, when I, in that reading, he appears to be naive to the brother's emotional response to his status and to his dreams. He certainly in, seems incapable of comprehending God's unseen purpose. Once in Potiphar's home, the narrator, it's not the character Joseph, tells of God's presence. There's nowhere in the story where, jo, where God comes up and pats Joseph on the, on the shoulder and says, It doesn't look like that, but it's going to be all right. Just hang in there. You don't get any of that. It's not until chapter 45, when the brothers show up, that Joseph says, You intended it for evil, but God has used it for good. Years pass before we hear Joseph articulate that. And then when dad dies, and the brothers think now the hatchet's going to come down on the neck, Joseph once again says, You intended this for evil, but God has used it for good. That understanding doesn't come till the end of the story. That's surprising, maybe disappointing. I believe that God, through Scripture, wish, wishes to shape me and to shape us. It's natural to take our story of woe 
as the victim of unequal love in my instance, to Scripture, desiring the Bible to directly address our pain. But I confess my understanding of any need is so narrow and so self-absorbed that I might manipulate Scripture for my own purpose. Thus, I wish to allow the story in Scripture to pick me up and to recast me so that I might be molded into a character designed by God. When I attempt when I attempted to assume the character of the older brother, my feelings of rejection were justified. They were given full reign to begin to evolve into unchecked feelings of anger. The brothers plot murder and finally enslave the hated family member. All of this is self-serving and evil. When I presumed, however, Joseph's character and the experiences of severed relationships, character assassination, and unpleasant encounters were all reframed. That's where my story stopped. Until I became part of a community. A community that encouraged me to move deeper into the story. To move toward forgiveness. To move toward reconciliation. To move into being a different man. What I'm saying is, it's imperative that the story of the Bible is told so clearly and so deeply that it calls into question and ultimately redefines what we think we know of reality and what we call wisdom in the first place. I tell this story, even though it's fresh and raw and personal, just as an example, because you have other stories too. You have your own personal accounts. And there is this large body of Scripture. Enter into it. But beware, when you enter into it, you're going to be called into a wrestling match that's going to take you deeper, not to solve your perceived issues, but to move deeper into God's desires for you and your life. And I don't think, I'm not capable of doing that by myself. I'm not able. I am too self-absorbed and too self-centered. I will stop where I want to stop unless I have a collection of brothers and sisters that will lovingly encourage me to go deeper. That's where uh, we'll end that section. That's where we wanted to end uh, last night. Kelly has appropriately introduced issues of, of, of paradigm. But before, maybe we need to kind of have a, uh, not a, not a break, stand up and move around kind of thing, but maybe an emotional sort of break. Is there, are there questions, um, comments on what, what, on what I've just done that you would like to, uh, address or bring up? Is there something here that's, um, I, the temptation will be, well, well, tell us about that, you know, what, what happened? What happened to your dad? What happened to your sister? That, you want to move back into my personal story. And I'm open. I'll tell you anything you want to know about my life. But I'm, uh, I'm more interested in how this might resonate in a, in a larger way. Do you have comments or questions? Kelly. Yeah. But um, last night you asked us to think of stories of mercy. Mm-hmm. And I immediately started thinking of stories of mercy in my life. Yeah. And reflecting on who 
Yeah. 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 Well, okay, well, not yet. Um, that's okay. I, I, I want to move into a, a whole uh, different realm when we get to issues of mercy in our own lives, but also in the, in the congregation's life that you have, you have images of. The way we're going to do that, I'll just set it up now. The way we'll do that is I'm going to actually sort of, it's going to sound like I'm preaching a sermon, but it's going to be an interactive sermon. You'll be interacting with me with the with the text and you'll also be interacting with two other congregations i was in knoxville tennessee wednesday and, and a couple of weeks ago with the uh, otter creek church in nashville and part of that experience is going to come out in in specifics which i'm hoping their story and the larger story will prompt your stories and these will could be be open questions but it's, the, the questions will be designed and the stories will be designed to move us deeper and deeper and deeper into this issue of, of mercy. So that's, that's what's coming. So be thinking about that homework assignment, uh, as, and ready to, to talk as we, as we go a little deeper. Are you ready? Other comments? Okay. <clears throat> uh, as a transition, Micah chapter 6 is a, a great narrative that uh, moves us to a community sensitivity. Micah, six, Micah is a 8th uh, um, uh, century prophet, and uh, it is a call for not just one-on-one walking with Jesus through the garden, but actually a community involvement. Uh, of justice and of justice for the larger community beyond my own little sphere. Micah is, um, has a, a lot of strong statements about what is a, a problem in society, social issues, uh, all the way through, just some, some, some headlines, so to speak, or some film clips here. Chapter 2, woe to you who scheme iniquity and work out evil on your beds. When morning comes, they do it. It's in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. Rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. You guys don't have a social, you guys have, you don't have social security like the United States does. You have a better system, as I recall. <laughs> but social security in the States is supposed to, you know, be set to, and when you're time to retire, then you're taken care of in your old age. You guys, Thought through that. Now we can do better than that, and did. And now all 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 U.S. citizens that I know want to move to Canada, so <laughs> we'll be okay. Yours truly included. Uh, but in in ancient Israel, they kind of had Canada in mind, I guess. I'm being facetious, but there there the property was was the social security system of Israel. You know, this was the land, and it was passed from me to my sons, and from my sons to their sons, and so on. That's how it worked. And here, Mike is saying that they are disrupting this system of of, of security. For society, and and the wealthy are going in and seizing the land, like all their possessions, everything that they have. It's just not right. He says in verse eight, or verse nine: "The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendid my splendor forever." Remember, it was the orphans and the widows in their distress. That's true religion. Take care of them. James would say, "Of course." Remember the Deuteronomy and the instructions there. And here now, they're not, they're, 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 
ignoring the social social concerns that are set up. Chapter 3, verse 1, it's not, isn't not for you to know justice, you who hate good and, and love evil? You tear the skin off them, you, their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people. You break their bones, they chop them up and throw them into a kettle. Look at verse 10. You know, well, if there's problems in society, just tell the police. You know, take it to the judge. Well, okay, they can't. Verse 11. Leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. The priests instruct for a price. Everybody's on the take in this society. There's no justice anywhere. And God's fed up with it. And then in chapter 6, can I justify wicked scales in a bag of deceptive weights? The whole system is systemic. It's corrupt. You go in, a little, a little lady goes in with her little bag of, 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 of money, little coins, and she wants to buy some bread for her family or some meat. And they put the, the, scale, the, the money on the scale and the meat over here, and then, voom, the guy puts his thumb on the scale. It's corrupt. They're ripping people off. Society is corrupt, Micah describes it. And that leads us then to chapter 6. It's a covenant lawsuit, and I want to read it to you. I want to read chapter, I want to read verse 8, and I want to get the right tone of voice. The phrase is, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, for ten years, I taught every, every freshman that came to Rochester College. They couldn't get past having flair. And I would have, I, and, I, and I would make them memorize passages. I would get the baseball players that I mentioned last night. I'd get people that had never been to church in their entire life. I would get, you know, church people. I got them all. And I would say, here are the five paradigmatic narratives of the Old Testament. I want you to memorize them. All grown, grown, grown. I'm going to quiz you every Friday. You're going to have to learn them. Might as well learn them now. There'll be points involved. Your grade depends on it. And they would grow, and then they would set to memorize them. Says, so you memorize it. That's your job. I've got other questions involved in the quizzes, but my job will be to show you during this semester that these are the five most important narratives in the Old Testament. And one of them was Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It was the easiest one. It was the first one. Who can't memorize? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, when I would grade, this is an aside, but when I would grade, uh, it, my, the grading would always look to me like Mount Fuji, almost always in this class, for 10 years, every semester. I'd have as many A's as F's, as many B's as D's, and then this group of C's looks just, just perfect. I just, I'd look back and say, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the F's, but <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> anyway, I'm, uh, and I have, you know, I have a couple thousand students go through this class. And uh, they're all memorizing this text. And one day, I'm at Ford Field in Detroit. I'm going to a football game. And I'm standing in line for something, for a Coke or something. And a young woman walks up. And she says, did you used to teach at Rochester College? And I said, yes. She says, are you Dr. Flair? And I said, yes, I am. She says, my name's such and so, and I had you in class. And I said, Really? I said, how did you do? (laughs) And she says, I didn't do very well. (laughs) I got a D, as I recall. I said, oh, did you, do you remember anything from the class? And she says, I remember that one verse. And then she quoted it at Ford Field. And I patted her on the back and I said, it warms my heart. I'm glad something stuck. And if anything would stick, I'm glad it was that one. How do you read that? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You know what's at stake in Micah? 
It's the social issues. It's social injustice, the systemic problems. And God, now in chapter 6, is taking Israel to court. Now, Israel's on trial, and so who's he going to call in as witnesses? Look at this. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. The word there early on in verse 2 is reeb in the, in the Hebrew. Reeb. It's a, it's a, it's a sign that we have a lawsuit. It's a courtroom. If I were to ask you to close your eyes, which I wouldn't do now at this hour after a full meal, because bad things might happen. If I were to close your eyes and say, I want you to raise your hand as soon as you know where we're at. It could be a bowling alley. It could be home. It could be anywhere. Grocery store. As soon as you know where we're at, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody would close their eyes and i say, here we go. All rise. I object. Overruled. Sustained. Your Honor. We're in a courtroom. You can tell by the words. The language gives it away. And so, too, in Micah 6, the language gives it away. Plead, case, indictment, case. Oh, yeah, I know where we're at. We're in a courtroom. And God has got a case against his people. And he calls on the mountains and the hills to gather around. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has a case against his people. Click, 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 click. Come to Courtroom, come to order. And now God speaks in verse 3. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he rehearses his history with them. He said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered from Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Oh, there's passion there. In other words, from the very beginning of your history, everything I've done to you is to demonstrate righteousness to the people so that you might do it to others. All right. Anything? You have anything to say in your defense? Israel stands up. Now remember, this is about social issues. What do you want them to say? What I want them to say is, "Oh, God, forgive us. You know, we're so sorry. We'll do better." You know, blah, blah, blah. no. They say this. They say, "With what shall I come before the Lord?" And bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Is that what you want? Will that make you happy? Does the Lord delight in thousands of rams? In ten thousand rivers of oil? Now he goes from a normal sacrifice to an excessive sacrifice. And now he then moves to an obscene sacrifice. What do you want? You want our firstborn, my firstborn, singular, for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Will that make you happy? It implies. And then the Lord, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require? Now notice the movement. To do justice, to love kindness, so that you might walk humbly with your God. They have a vertical thing in mind. Sacrifice, more sacrifice, obscene sacrifice. And verse 8 turns it into horizontal kind of stuff. Do justice, love, 
kindness in order that you might walk humbly with your God. There's a certain passion in verse 8. He has told you, O man. A restrained kind of passion in that reading, I would say. Now, this is the kind of background, the kind of concern. And some would even say that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're at now in Matthew 5-7, you have this social justice background of Amos and Micah in mind. And so now we begin with the interactive sermon. In African-American churches that I've attended and been a part of, uh, a lot of times there's a, a call and response. Not at all. But in many, there's a call and response. And you'll hear, amen, preach it, you know, well, this kind of a thing. Uh, I'm asking for a call and response sermon uh, with a Canadian church in Calgary, Alberta. You know, uh, I should know better. But I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want any of that. I don't want anybody to speak in tongues or stand and clap and, you know, do cartwheels or anything of that kind of stuff. I, what I really want in this call and response is I want you to have, I want to hear your stories. I'm thinking 200, 250 words. If you were to put that into uh, minutes, it might be a two to three minute max kind of, kind of story. A narrative, an experience that you have had as a congregation on mercy. A few weeks ago, and I'll, 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 I'll cue you in, you know, I'll, I'll say, and, and then, you know, we'll, we'll do that. But a few weeks ago, a, on, on Facebook, a friend had a post, and he said, and he was going to plant a new church. And he said, um, I'm starting a sermon series for a new church plant. He said, you know, on Facebook, where in Scripture would you begin a sermon series for a new church plant? And I thought about this a long time before I saw the question on Facebook. And so I immediately responded. And I said, the Sermon on the Mount, if I had the nerve. To wade deep into the Sermon on the Mount is not a typical move for any church unless they're trying to create some parking spaces or, uh, <laughs> or if they've been gone to two services to get it back down to one. Uh, especially with considerations on this phrase, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I have a lot to learn about mercy, and maybe you do as well, because some of us weren't trained in it, and some of us weren't fed by it. In the neighborhood where I grew up, the Bacchus family lived across the street and one house down. Like us, they were members of Messiah Lutheran Church, and Mr. Bacchus was a grocery clerk at the local Safeway, and my dad was a grocery clerk at the local pay-and-take-it. The two families, there was some competition and strain, but they got along reasonably well, as far as I could tell, until one day my sister was riding her bike back and forth in front of the Bacchus home. With the Bacchus twins, Danny and Donnie, her grade school classmates, playing there on the curb. Knowing her, she was probably teasing the boys, but she pedaled home crying and screaming, claiming that the twins had pelted her with rocks. My dad immediately stormed over to the Bacchus home, and knocked on the door, and Mrs. Bacchus answered. My angry dad proceeded to tell Mrs. Bacchus what my sister had described and then he, to him, and then he demanded that Danny and Donnie apologize to his daughter. Mrs. Bacchus replied that the twins would have done no such thing and that if he wanted an apology, he better not hold his breath, and she slammed the door. My dad then marched home, 
called a family meeting, and he declared war on the Bacchuses, announcing that we would never again shop at Safeway, no matter what kind of sales they were advertising, and that we would now attend the early service at Messiah Lutheran Church to avoid the Bacchuses, who were notorious for being late risers. (laughs) And furthermore, we were never to again play with the Bacchus children. This was soon after the Cuban Missile Crisis with Khrushchev and Kennedy, and so I understood the language of war. But with no Bacchus children my age to play with, I had nothing to lose, and so I settled in comfortably to witness the Cold War between the families that the entire neighborhood knew about. Months passed, years, until one day I got wind that Danny, one of the alleged assailants, was building a 10-speed, and I was in the market for a recreational vehicle, that is, a bike. And so I approached Danny, who showed me the titanium frame and the, and the superior 10-speed that he was constructing and how much better a bike it was than anything you could find in the stores. And so I proceeded to pay Danny a large percentage of my life's savings at that point to purchase the 10-speed, which I rode for exactly one week until it literally fell apart. So I took the damaged bike back to Danny, and I said, please fix it, to which he said, I don't do repairs, to which I said, then I want my money back, to which he said, I've spent it (laughs) on parts. It's all gone. And so in my mind was the Cold War gone, too, and I had a sudden urge to lob a grenade down the Bacchus chimney (laughs) and settle things once and for all. I'm just saying this to say that we have a lot to learn about mercy because some of us here, yours truly, weren't trained in it. Some of us weren't fed by it, either in personal, congregational, or international scale. I've spent much of my life not preparing to speak from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. By that I do not mean that I've never preached a sermon from blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I most certainly have though I cringe to think what I must have said. I was probably reading Robert Schuller at the time, who was the founding pastor of the famous Crystal Cathedral, and his popular volume, Be Happy, Be Happy Attitudes. Maybe you've seen it. Every pastor in the United States received a copy when it came out in the mid-'80s, which provided a perfect reconciliation of Christianity with everything, with everyone in every workplace. And he writes a prescription for Christian joy. He says, just give some of your money to the poor. It'll make you feel better. Volunteer at the local food bank. It will do you a world of good, which is true in a way. Endorphins do fly through our body when you write a check for the needy. On my way to the airport yesterday, NPR reported a study out of the University of Michigan that said that volunteers live longer than non-volunteers if the volunteer's motive is to help people. But if the volunteer's motive is just to get out of the house, they live no longer than the non-volunteers. And I thought, there you go. Schuller is being confirmed again. But the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, does not begin with the be happy attitudes. And so this Saturday morning, I would like to set aside Robert Schuller and instead read a paradigmatic, from a paradigmatic narrative in Matthew, where we soon discover that mercy is at the center of Jesus' desire for us. It says, I read, 
that God blesses and bestows mercy on those who do mercy. It says that God envisions for us a world defined by mercy, not defined by revenge, not defined by economic savvy, not defined by military power, but a world defined by mercy. When we read Matthew's gospel, we soon discover that this book assumes acts of mercy. But we also find in Matthew's gospel that acts of mercy are not assumed to be natural. They weren't natural in my neighborhood, where rock-throwing answered taunting, where demands for apology were met with slam doors, where cold wars were a reality. And then when it got personal, which I mean to say when it involved my money, then an escalation to violence seemed like an attractive option. No wonder in Matthew's gospel, Jesus twice quotes the prophet, I require mercy and not sacrifice. No wonder in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his hearers, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I require mercy and not sacrifice. I'm quoting 9.13 and 12.7. Go and learn. We have to learn mercy according to Jesus because mercy does not come natural in a culture that is dominated, whether it's in Canada or the United States, by self-serving power. It wasn't natural then, and it's not natural now. In Matthew's gospel, even the religious leaders have it wrong. Jesus castigates the Pharisees. You tithe mint, dill, and, mer- and, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters, including mercy. In Matthew's gospel, mercy is at the center of Jesus' vision and expectations for us. Of course, you weren't raised in my neighborhood, were you? Your sister didn't taunt the neighbor boys. Your dad did not have an explosive and retaliatory temper. You didn't have dealings with young shysters named Danny Bacchus. Or maybe you did. Our neighborhoods have evolved dramatically over the last 50 years. We've traded up for home value and school proximity, but some things haven't changed a bit. And although the Cuban Missile Crisis is nearly half a century old and Kennedy and Khrushchev are long in the grave, our global neighborhoods have shrunk so much that none of us in this room miss this year's troublesome stories from neighbors just down the block. It began in Egypt in February, the Cairo airport chaos, a scramble for outbound commercial flights. Streets were turning violent. Fighting increased, and then there were six dead and hundreds injured. And then in July, in Islamabad, al-Qaeda operatives were were planning to do in Western targets. And now in September, Syria is the Syria unrest continues. Thugs and armed gangs are running rampant. 2,200 people have been killed since March. Protesters are taking to the streets where they face a barrage of bullets and sniper fire. This is our neighborhood. This is our worldwide neighborhood. Not too different from a couple of summers ago when violence was increasing in Afghanistan, North Korea was testing nuclear weapons, the president of Iran was calling for Israel's annihilation at the very moment that Israeli troops were amassing soldiers and tanks on Lebanon's borders, making another expansive war imminent. Do you remember that? Maybe you don't, because this increase in violence is becoming so common It just kind of tends to bleed into one another in our memories. But in the midst of that turmoil that I just described, one newspaper's op-ed section featured a memorable quarter-page cartoon backdropped with this massive human skull. And standing in one eye socket was an Israeli soldier, and standing in the other eye socket was a Hezbollah combatant. 
And the voice coming out from the skull says, All in favor of retaliating in retaliation for the retaliation, dot, dot, dot. And both soldiers raise their arms. And then it says, An eye for an eye. Preemptive strikes and justifiable violence are now neighborhood code. But the policies that advance with bombs and protect with bullets, just like families and churches that taunt and throw, demand and slam, and put their foot down when finances are threatened, are incompatible with Jesus' vision of a world where disciples turn the other cheek, walk the second mile, and define themselves by mercy. The international creed that violence ends violence, the international creed of retaliation that has seeped into homes and seeped into churches is incompatible with Jesus' vision of a kingdom that rewards mercy with mercy. The followers of Jesus believe an eye for an eye leaves a lot of people blind because followers of Jesus are told, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We have a lot to learn about mercy, even those of us who were trained in it, because we, do, we know that it doesn't come easy. So we are especially attentive to Jesus when he says, Go and learn what this means. I require mercy. Go and learn, Jesus tells us. A rich man is talking to Jesus about eternal life. Rich man says, How do I qualify? Jesus says to the rich man, Liquidate your assets, give it all to the poor, and come follow me. But the rich man walks away, holding tight to his money and tight to his things that he can't bear to let go. This is practical learning for us. Jesus identifies a project and offers a community of mercy. The man is defined by his wealth. Matthew calls him a rich man. So Jesus tells him to get rid of that which defines him. Dismantle his participation in the Roman economic system that benefits him and abuses others, and then give to the poor. Transfer his resources to the needy. Reverse the flow of products from the haves to the have-nots. Then he says, come follow me. Join a community of disciples with different visions, different practices, a people who are shaped by mercy. This is practical learning. Jesus identifies the project, spells out the steps to re-envision the world, and offers a community of mercy. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I would like now for us to look to models from congregations, from another congregation and from your congregation. I open it up with an illustration from a church in Nashville. There were members of this congregation who fought in the Korean War. They then returned after the war to Nashville. They dismantled their identity as soldiers, and they became disciples. They went back to the same country where they had once been, where they had once answered bullets with bullets, and now they acted like disciples of Jesus. And because the war had obliterated a huge source of Korean food, namely dairy and cattle, these disciples, these Christians, purchased a dairy farm. And from that investment, created one of Korea's largest dairy farms. Blessed are the merciful who turn short, uh, plowshares and in, into, uh, or turn swords into plowshares and feed hungry people. A second example before I want to hear from you. Consider a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. There was a tragic car accident 
a member of the congregation was killed. In the back seat was her two-year-old son, safely secured in a car seat, uninjured in the accident, but traumatized. Two women that night, the woman, the woman who died was life-flighted from one city into Knoxville, where strangers at the accident took the little two-year-old, Andrew, to the hospital. The mother died, and as she was dying, two women from the congregation came and took Andrew home with him, where he spent the night. The two women, after the death and after the funeral, got to talking. And they said, if only little Andrew had had something to hold on to. When he was in shock and so confused, it would have made a difference. And that's when the idea in their mind came to be. They came up with the idea of a stuffed animal, a bear, which evolved into what they called the love bear, because the woman who died was named Martha Love. It was a simple design, a cloth bear stuffed with polyester, And today, this congregation has placed tens of thousands of love bears in the arms of children in hospitals and through the police. They've sent these bears, these love bears, to Romania and other nations. They've even set up programs to help other churches start their own love bear programs. They've had workshops where they gather for lunch or dinner and they stuff bears. It's not that the congregation will occasionally hear somebody say, thank you for what you've done. It's that Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful who turn nightmares into movements to comfort little children. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What has been your experience in this congregation? What story, in just a minute or two, can you tell when in the midst of trauma, in the midst of difficulty, when things were reversed, when you really lived out, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this is where I'm so grateful, Bruce, that this is being recorded so that we can, we can remember what, what's being said. We're going to give you a couple of other specifics, too, but go ahead. Think about it. Well, let me start. Okay. Two beds, 
additions for the kitchen. And, uh, and these people have been absolutely taken care of. One of the things that not everybody has heard is that they had apparently, I didn't know this until later, they had been in Calgary before and had not had a good experience here. In fact, they, they left Calgary feeling like, wow, Calgarians aren't very friendly. Uh, didn't go so well for us in Calgary. And so they had moved, I think, to Montreal. They moved back from Montreal here because they wanted to begin uh, experience Calgary, I guess, for whatever reasons. And their claim now is that our church has completely turned around their perception of what Calgarians are like. And so these two blind people who came here really with nothing now have a house filled with furniture and all those things, uh, lots of toys for the kids. And the fact is, they've been given a new opportunity to lease online. And it's because the people in this room, from our church in general, bless them. Under and we didn't care if they were Christians, we didn't care if they knew Jesus, we just heard that there was a lot of life Listen, listen to the words of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Thank you. Go and learn what this means. I desire <clears throat> Consider 24-year-old Nathan Hale, not the one of famous American history, but a young man, a tall left-hander who threw in the low 90s baseball player, before elbow problems and arm surgeries ended his baseball dreams and removed his baseball identity. Just before he arrived to Lipscomb as a freshman, his identity dismantled. He took a course from a Lipscomb professor where his root ethic changed from right or wrong, in his words, to bearing witness to the kingdom of God, as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Two months ago, he left Nashville and flew to Honduras, where he arrived near a, near a massive garbage dump, where numerous children in Honduras were rummaging for food. The dump is disease-ridden and morally corrupt. But Nathan and his friends purchased two and a half acres of land adjacent to the dump where they were planting, where they were planting a garden to annually harvest one million pounds of food to feed the children. Blessed are those who show mercy to children currently living in filth and disease, for they shall receive mercy. This is practical learning, creating communities of mercy. Do you have a story to tell? an example of a congregation, of your congregation, in your history. Kelly's was recent. Is there one that goes back in time where you saw this lived out? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Did you see somebody whose identity was dismantled by 24-year-old Nathan Hale, a baseball player, and becoming somebody who's motivated to live out the ethic of the kingdom of God, as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, um, I don't know if people, some people here in this room are remember, um, she's been passed away for a while now, but there was an elder lady that used to come to this church called Edith Weiss, and she had no family, she was a single lady, she never married, I guess she came from England, and uh, she was there for uh, 
Central Park Lodge here in Calgary, but Marshall, Mark, and Harry, I looked after finances, took care of her. Um, I used to be able to write to my target church when I couldn't have more than a water. But um, I think there, there's an example of mercy because she had no other family to be around. Yeah. Just like personally, uh, there's another person on Margaret Harris, I mean, uh, on uh, <coughs> Margaret Tillman, that uh, gets rights and stuff and, and gets helped out. She's not another single older lady. Excellent. Listen to the words of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who give rights to those who for they shall receive mercy. That's what he says. Go and learn what this means, Jesus said. I require mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn in Matthew. Go and learn in the outcroppings among you and everywhere that Jesus appears. You remember when the religious scholars and the elite brought before Jesus a woman, and they stood her in plain sight, and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. The law gives orders to stone her. What do you say? And he said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then the accusers walked away. Left alone, left alone and Jesus said, Jesus said to the woman, Does no one condemn you? And she said, No one. And he said, Neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. It was a practical learning opportunity that presented itself. Condemnation or mercy? A single girl becomes pregnant. But instead of heading to Texas, as was the custom not too long ago, a family shelters her from social abuse and nurtures her, planting seeds for a, an organization that is thriving today in the city. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There are stories that are too sensitive to discuss, of adoptions, of bailing people out of jail, providing funds to end a hostile family feud, all of which Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We, as a group of Christians living in community together, are reconstructing an alphabet of discipleship, an alphabet that gives us the vocabulary to create the sentences, to frame the conversation, to shape a people of mercy. Because mercy isn't natural, and that's why it's not easy. Sometimes even oppressive policies must be overturned and strategies of mercy put in their place. The law says, stone her. What do we do? A generation ago, a man and woman who had both previously married and both divorced from their former partners married and began a new family. And they had a child who grew and became a Christian. When this newly baptized young person was asked to lead prayer and worship, the father stepped forward and requested that he stand with his child when the child led prayer. Before that day, the policy of this congregation allowed divorced persons inside the door but asked that they be as invisible as possible. But when the leaders of this congregation listened and looked at the young person and looked at the dad, and remembered Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, they decreed that this church would no longer judge a person's right to publicly serve and worship based on personal experiences or marital status. Mercy isn't natural, and therefore it isn't easy. Because living in the world envisioned in the Sermon on the Mount is nothing like what our society expects. 
which is the support and compliance of another version of an international decree that demands an eye for an eye. Mercy isn't easy, especially when problems are systemic and compounded when the Danny Bacchuses of our world have become community policymakers, enacting laws and ordinances that are designed to protect their best interests and the best interests of the powerful. Do you have a story of mercy that challenged some of the laws and ordinances that were enacted in the congregation, that were in place in the congregation or in the, or in the community? I will guess that the opportunity for those stories, if not articulated now, they've already occurred someplace, and you'll have opportunities in the weeks and the months ahead. In Nashville, Tennessee, last year they had a major, massive flood. Maybe you heard about it. Twelve inches of rain that fell in five hours. There was a homeless community in Nashville called Tent City, where the homeless lived. Those tents were all wiped out. They plucked 140 homeless people from the waters and relocated them under bridges and in the woods. And even tonight, there will be some sleeping in a church parsonage. This project to relocate the homeless has met with severe resistance from neighborhood zoning laws and even church members who are afraid. People who want to, in their words, eradicate homelessness, like one might eradicate polio or eradicate insects. But this congregation's motto challenges the policy to eradicate, insisting instead to be an advocate with the homeless. It isn't easy, but blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I require mercy. Do you have a story to share? One last opportunity. Is there an experience in your congregation's life or in your personal life? You're probably not wanting to draw attention to yourself. Um, but it's so encouraging when we hear of, and it's, it, there's, there's biblical texts and there's personal texts that help us, to help us learn what Jesus means. He desires mercy and not sacrifice, even when it's not easy. Do you remember when Jesus was talking with us? We were all gathered around him, and he said to us, What would you do? He told us, What would you do if something really bad happened to me? You know, if I didn't have food or place to stay if I were, for example, incarcerated. What would you do? And he said, for you? Why? Why, we would give you a meal. We would take you to our home. And if you were in jail, we'd go visit. And he said, when you see the poorest person, the lowest of all, you're looking at me. He said, go and learn what this means. Watch him. Watch how Jesus enters a room. Look at his friends. Watch him even on election day here in Canada. Walk into the voting booth there with him. Let, watch him look over the candidates and the initiatives and the laws. With each one, he has an essential question. He asks, how will this person enact mercy for this community? He asks, what will this candidate do 
for the poor. In the States, we're wrestling over matters of health care, restorative justice, and immigration. Watch Jesus. What are your issues? You've read Matthew. Nothing that Jesus does surprises. But to create such a reality takes a grammar of honesty and love, truth-telling and repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and mercy. We, as a body of Christians, are beginning to construct a grammar with the building blocks of sermons and classes and conversations, models from out, models from within, all for the larger task of equipping the church to develop the character of mercy. That is, to move into the world that Scripture envisions for us. That is, to take seriously those narratives that are described as by themselves and other texts, by Israel, by the Church in the New Testament, as paradigmatic, most important. And given our troublesome times today, and the embedded resistance to mercy, it is altogether essential that we be shaped by these paradigmatic narratives, trained in them, fed by them, that we might live into the reality that they envision, affirming, for example, that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's the end of this presentation, and it is exactly the time that Kelly said I should go no further then. It's 11 o'clock. But on Wednesday night, when we worked this out with the particular congregation there in, in Knoxville. What was interesting to me, and I, and I thought about it since Wednesday, and it seems to be true, and that is so many of the stories were success stories, and we helped them, and then they became Christians. And we helped them, and now they are on our staff, and they are ministers today. And I didn't say it then, but it seems to be pretty clear now that the text says... Blessed are the merciful, for they, the ones doing mercy, will receive mercy. It's not the Robert Schuler. This is why we're getting in it, so we'll get the goodies at the end. But this is who we are, and this is what happens when we act that way. Whether the Iraqis ever grace this church or not, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, Kelly, I'll turn it over to you. David, thank you very much. Well, there was some silence there on the stories that could be told. And I, was, I had to keep my lips closed and not just go on and on. Because I had all these things that were coming to mind. Like if I say something about Lauren and Faye, you all know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that we have fed on a regular basis. We haven't said much about Lauren lately, and that's because Lauren, from what we hear from his brother Gabriel, is in Vancouver and is doing very well. These are street people from the Native community, First Nations, who come here, and we feed First Nations people all the time. Um, I actually saw Faye yesterday. I was uh, having lunch with Megan, looked out the window, and there goes Faye across the street with some ladies. She looked to me like she was sober. Uh, did she come by? Okay. Didn't know if she was going to come by or not. I know she's been in jail. Uh, you know, but Lauren is, uh, you know, Lauren may well be a success story. But whether he is or not, you know, we've blessed him with mercy. And those stories could be told 
again and again by people in this room who know the kind of things that we've done. And I'm not saying that to say to David, see, we've got a good church, we do a lot of things. It's to say that this notion of mercy, I think, does find itself played out among us. I think the narratives from Scripture and the mercy that we see there plays out among us, and I'm so grateful that it does. What, I, what I'm confident about, what David certainly would, uh, would, would agree with, is that it needs to happen at an accelerated rate in our world today and among all of us. <clears throat> that our lives need to reflect those narratives in an increasing way. And when they do, the impact that our church has on our world will be increased. One of the things that I talked to him about in coming up here was talking was wanting to uh, to affirm, speak again to the to the notion of the kingdom of God being lived out by us in our world. We live in a community that badly needs for us to live out the kingdom of God here in this place. We want to have an impact on our world in a significant way, and this whole notion of being ever minded of mercy and the call on us to be merciful to those around us is a paradigmatic narrative in scripture that we need to constantly give near to. And so I'm grateful that those of us who, many of whom of course are in leadership positions in this church, can be shaped by, <coughs> shaped by the idea uh, that to offer mercy is not a sidelight not part of what we do in some insignificant way, but is so much a huge part of what we need to think about. So you can go from here and be filled with mercy in our world today. And long term, God's kingdom is going to flourish because people are merciful. Gary? Just one, one comment on this thing. Um, you know, doing these uh, acts of you know, kindness or what is never wrong. And it's somewhat easy for self but being countercultural is a whole lot more difficult. Being, being countercultural in the name of Jesus Christ is that. And uh, for me, that's what I have more difficult in that. Sure. Yeah. It is a struggle, I think, for all of us. I think it's difficult when your eyes open wide enough to see all the circumstances around you to call for acts of mercy on your part. It's hard for us to recognize the sacrifices that sometimes need to be made. God desires mercy, not sacrifice, but sometimes mercy can be a sacrificial act in our path, not our part. <coughs> we offer something to God in the midst of that, and sometimes that's difficult for us to do. But I think we're called to that, for sure. One of the things that you didn't say today that I almost expected you to get back to, and so again, maybe you're going to go there still. I'm going to preach your sermon for you. But didn't you hear in David's own story God being merciful to him? 